In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Through the grace of God, tonight we will start chapter 1 from the Gospel of St. Luke. Uh, let me first give you the outline of the chapter. From verse 1 to 4, it is prologue to the Gospel and dedication to Theophilus. Then from verse 5 to 25, uh, the birth of John the Baptist was announced to Zacharias. Then from verse 26 to 38, the Annunciation to St. Mary. From verse 39 to 45, the Visitation of St. Mary to Elizabeth. Then from verse 46 to 56, the Virgin's Hymn of Praise, or we call it the Magnificent. From verse 57 to 58, the birth of John the Baptist. From verse 59 to 66, circumcision of John the Baptist. Then from 67 to 80, the end of the chapter, Zechariah's prophecy, the prophecy of Zechariah. It's a long chapter, so it may be it take three or four uh, Bible study sessions. Hopefully today we'll start, we will finish the prologue, verse 1 to 4, and the announcement to Zechariah, the birth of John the Baptist. So let's start from Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that we may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So basically, St. Luke is sending this uh, gospel to a person named Theophilus, and he told him many people actually wrote narratives about the life of Christ. But this actually narrative is very known to me personally. Why he said it is very, very known to me personally? Because he received this information from eyewitnesses who were uh, servant or ministers of the word of God and uh, followed everything from the beginning. So uh, Luke took upon his shoulder this responsibility to understand perfect, perfectly the things that happened from the very beginning and to write them accurately to Theophilus. So Theophilus would know the certainty of the things that he was instructed by regarding the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually the summary of the four verses. But let me explain or elaborate more in detail. St. Luke begins his prologue by mentioning the reasons of his writing and also mentioning that there are other Gospels recording the events of Jesus' life. Some scholars actually count as many as 
34 different gospels written in the first two to three centuries of the church. And other scholars actually count more than 34. But the church actually maintained only four gospels as canonical and as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Also, scholar Origen, the head of the school of Alexandria, testified that from the very, very beginning, the church only acknowledged four gospels as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John. So Luke is saying many, many people wrote, but not everybody wrote actually is accurate. Uh, and here actually we can see that the Gospel of St. Luke is not the only Gospel to begin with a prologue, but also it is the only Gospel to begin with a former literary prologue that was common in secular document of the time. Yeah, the Gospel of St. Luke is the only Gospel start with prologue, different from Matthew, Mark, and John. And also, when St. Luke wrote his Gospel, he followed the former literary prologue that was common in the secular world at that time. Luke will not write of things about which Christians may differ from one another and hesitate within themselves. But he said, I am writing about things which are and ought to be surely believed. So he will not write anything that's disputed, but he will only write about facts. And as you know, uh, Luke has a scientific mind, since he was a physician. So he said, uh, uh, verse 2, just as those from the beginning, those from the beginning, be which beginning he is speaking about? He means from the commencement of these things, from the birth of John, because actually the life of Christ started by the birth of John or the annunciation to Zechariah about the birth of John. So that's what he meant by from the beginning. And he said, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So, those who delivered to Luke and to the church the facts of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, they had personal knowledge and practical experience. They were eyewitnesses when they delivered these uh, messages. So he said to Theophilus in verse 3, it seemed good to me to write to you an orderly account. So, the whole statement, we can actually paraphrase it as if St. Luke is saying, the narrative of the memorable events which have been accomplished in our midst, many have undertaken to compose. But these are different narrative. Uh, so, it seems good to me, actually, to write to you in a strict conformity with the apostolic tradition. Why with the apostolic tradition? Because the apostles are men who were themselves eyewitnesses of these great events. And also, even after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, they became ministers of the word. So, as the apostles handed these things down to us, that is how Luke is writing to Theophilus. So, basically, he's saying many people wrote, but 
When I'm sending you the letter, Luke is saying, I followed everything from the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word, the apostles. So I'm not writing any account. I'm writing what actually is 100% accurate and true. As if he is saying, I have traced up all these traditions to their very sources and propose rewriting them in consecutive order that you, Theophilus, may be fully convinced of the positive certainty of those great truths in which you have been instructed. You will have no doubt that what I'm writing to you is the absolute truth about this event. He called him in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. So this adjective, most excellent, is the same adjective that used to address Felix the governor by Tertullus, as we read in the book of Acts, chapter 24, verse 3, which implies that most excellent means a high social position and maybe an official rank. But who was Theophilus? Theophilus actually is a proper name, was used uh, commonly from the third century before Christ and after that. So this was a common name. And there is no reason to assume that Theophilus was not the name of someone Luke knew. Because some have suggested uh, that Theophilus just is a title. Uh, Theophilus literally means lover of God. So he is sending this to any people who love God. But some have suggested that Theophilus was uh, the sponsor of St. Luke, who was actually funding the publication of his gospel and the book of Acts. So he was a real person, sponsored St. Luke in publishing the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the two books written by Luke. Others have suggested Theophilus is a name of benefactor or man is honored uh, by dedication to God because as I told you Theophilus literally means God lover or the lover of God or the friend of God so maybe this person want to reveal his identity, sorry, not to reveal his identity. So he's a real person, but St. Luke, in order to hide his identity, he called him the friend of God or the lover of God. Uh, as sometimes in Arabic, we call fa'al khir. So St. Luke is addressing a real person, but he wants to hide his identity. That's why he called him Theophilus the friend of God or the lover of God. Others said that he was most likely from uh, the connection of St. Luke with Antioch. So Theophilus was a noble of that great and wealthy city, Antioch, and may fairly be taken as the representative of the culture uh, thoughtful class uh, for whom uh, in measure uh, St. Luke wrote. So St. Luke actually is writing to educated high social class and Theophilus from this class so he, he's representing this high level social class. Still others have suggested the name Theophilus, God lover uh, in the dedication referred to all believers in Jesus Christ. 
so not to a particular person, but to any believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, St. Luke told him, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning. Uh, as if he is saying, uh, what I'm telling you is, is very, very accurate. I have followed up. I investigated step by step all things from their resources. Uh, and, and here St. Luke is sitting uh, out his reasons of under, uh, undertaking a fresh compilation. Why he is writing? What is the reason? Uh, his gospel actually would differ from the early gospels by going back much further than they did. No other gospel started from the Annunciation to Zechariah like the gospel of St. Luke. So St. Luke actually gave us early details, a history of the incarnation and the infancy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are his reasons uh, to write his gospel? The purpose the evangelist had in writing this gospel and sending it to Theophilus, that he might be more strongly assured of and more firmly established in the truth of the gospel. So he want actually to confirm Theophilus and all the believers in the Gentile world in the faith that was uh, preached to them. That is the purpose of writing the gospel. After the prologue, he starts from verse 5 to speak to us about the birth of John the Baptist and how this birth was announced to Zacharias. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Uh, St. Luke in his Gospel, and also in the book of Acts, he begins, as he had promised, with the very facts in the divine order of, of events, and mention historical events and important people to establish the time frame of the story. So here, by mentioning in the days of Herod, a priest named Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, by giving all these facts, he is giving us the uh, time frame of the story and assuring us that he is speaking about a real story. So he opened the gospel account by setting the time in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Actually, at the time of the events of Jesus' life, Judea was no longer an independent state. Herod here was a strong ruler, but also was a cruel and merciless man. Uh, so during this time, uh, the, um, the birth of John was announced to Zechariah. Zechariah means literally God remembers. God remembers. You know, Hebrew and Arabic are very close because both of them are Semitic language. So, Zechariah, Bil Arabi, Allah Yaskur, Rabbina Tazakkar, Zikr, Zechariah. So, Zechariah means God remembers. Uh, he said, he was from the division of Abijah. Let me explain what does this mean. Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, had four sons. But two of them 
Nadab and Abihu uh, were instructed for using profane fire in the sanctuary, as we read in Leviticus chapter 10. So now we have two remaining sons, Aliazer and Ithamar. And from these two sons had sprung in the day of David 24 families. So from these two sons, we have 24 families. 16 from the descendant of Ariazar and 8 from the descendant of Ithamar. When the priests became so numerous, many, many priests, that they could not at once minister at the order, David divided them into 24 classes or courses, each one of which officiated for a week, as we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. So during the time of David, he we have 24 families. So David divided them into 24 uh, courses, and each course will serve one week. So the class or the course or the shift of Abijah was the eighth in order, as we read in First Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10. So this was the Kariah was from the division or the shift of Abijah. His wife from the daughters of Aaron. This is actually added uh, more honor to this family. So the wife, actually, Elizabeth, is a direct descendant of Aaron. Elizabeth was not only from the tribe of Levi, but a direct descendant from Aaron, whom God made the noblest family of the Levites, because that is a family of priesthood. So both husband and wife, Zachariah and Elizabeth, traced their lineage back to the very high priest, to Aaron. Definitely this was an honorable position, a desired distinction in Israel. Elizabeth means the oath of God or the rod of my God. Uh, so Zechariah means God remembers, and here the oath or the rod of God. Uh, verse 6, and they were both, Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Both of them were righteous before God. Not as the Pharisees, righteous before men. No, they were righteous in the sight of God, who searches the heart, and whose judgment is according to the truth. Walking in all the commandments, this is the evidence of their righteousness before men, that they, they were walking in all the commandments. Blameless as the Bible says. Blameless doesn't mean that they were without sin, because nobody is without sin. But it means uh, that they lived the life of repentance, so they were blameless in the sight of God. I usually try to liken it with our clothes. If I wash my clothes regularly, at any moment people will see my clothes clean, not because they never get dirty, but because they are washed regularly. That's exactly the life of repentance. When I wash my sins regularly in repentance, in the tears of repentance, at any moment, God sees me, he finds me clean, means blameless. 
not because I never committed sin, but because I am living the life of repentance. That's actually what scholar origin uh, said about the word blameless. Uh, scholar origin said, our Lord Jesus referred to the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, glorious church not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This does not mean that the son of the church has, have, has never sinned, but that rather he leads a life of repentance. So when the Lord spoke about the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, no spot, no wrinkle, holy and without blemish, doesn't mean that we, the children of the church, we never sinned, but means we are living the life of repentance. In verse 6, he said, walking in all the commandments and ordinances. So what's the difference between commandments and ordinances? Commandments are known, like the Ten Commandments. Ordinances, these words refer to all the duties of religion which were made known to them. Our duties, like fasting, praying, tithing, that's what we call the ordinances, what's ordained for us to follow and to fulfill. Verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So, at that time, before Christ, a family that had no child was regarded as a heavy misfortune because it cuts off all hope of the birth of the Messiah in that family. It's considered reproach. Uh, but in the providence of God, in his economy, he actually made Elizabeth barren that the birth of John the Baptist might be more remarkable and might be of greater attention because Elizabeth is barren and also both of them were very advanced in their ages. So here actually you can see double obstacle in the way of having children. The first obstacle, the natural barrenness of Elizabeth. She is barren. And the second obstacle, the old age of both of them. So, uh, this is considered a double proof of the supernatural invention of God in the birth of John the Baptist. It is not, it's a miraculous, it's supernatural. Uh, so, God actually uh, wants to know that John is a person sent miraculously by God for a great mission, to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 8, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, Zechariah was serving in his week, in due course, as explained. <coughs> and it fell to his lot on a certain day to perform the very special service of burning incense in the holy place. As we read in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Just I want to explain, to offer incense at that time, it was actually a great occasion in a priest's life that it might never come again in his life. It might come only once in his life. Why? It was said that, that during the time of Christ, they were about 20,000 priests. 
20,000 priests. So can you imagine with 20,000 priests, it could therefore never fall to the lot of the same priest twice or even once to offer incense. They used to cast a lot, and whoever uh, was chosen, he offered incense. So here is a Kariah, actually. It was a great occasion that he will enter into the holy place to offer incense. Uh, let me remind you, when you enter into the tabernacle of meeting, in the outside court, the first thing you will see is the altar of burnet offering then the basin then in the tent itself is divided into the holy place and the holy of the holies and it is divided by a veil in the middle in the holy we have three things when you enter in the holy place you will find the lamp stand on your left side the table of the showbread on the right side and the altar of incense in front of you just in front of the veil, before the veil, and behind the veil, the Holy of the Holies with the Ark of Covenant. So, Zechariah now will enter inside the holy place to stand inside of the golden altar, the altar of incense, to offer incense. And the priest used to enter in white robes to offer incense with other men, Levites, who actually, after they prepare everything and make ready everything, they leave. Uh, what they need to prepare, uh, for example, to remove the ashes from the formal service, to bring in and place on the golden order the pan filled with hot burning charcoals taken from the altar of burning offering. The charcoal must be taken from the altar of burning offering because this altar represents the cross. So they took the charcoal, for, uh, 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 the coals of fire from the altar of burning offering, which represents the cross, offer incense to symbolize that the sacrifice of the cross, the father smelled this sacrifice as a sweet aroma. Also, to sprinkle and to prepare incense to be sprinkled on hot coals. So after these people prepare all this, they leave. And now only the priest inside the holy place uh, by himself. People are waiting outside in the court of Israel, praying in deep silence. Tell the priest who was sacrificing the evening lamp at the great altar of burning offering in the court, give a signal to his colleague in the shrine to offer incense. So that's what's exactly happening. There is priest outside offering the evening lamp on the court, no, sorry, on the altar of burning offering. When he offered when he sacrificed the lamb, he gave a signal to the priest to offer incense. So the killing of the lamb will be in the same time with the incense offered. So God smelled this sacrifice as a sweet aroma. When the signal reaches the priest inside the holy place, then he threw incense on the fire of the golden altar and its fragrant smoke or incense rose with the prayer of the people. So people waiting outside praying, a priest offering a sacrifice on the altar of the burnt offering outside the holy place, another priest standing at the golden altar offering incense, and people standing outside praying in silence. As we read in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. What happened? Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So, 
400 years before this incident, there was no uh, heaven, heavenly messages to the people at all. 400 years had passed since God had given to his ancient people any supernatural communication. So this appearance was the first appearance from 400 years ago. No prophecy, no angels, nothing for 400 years. But now actually, because the Father is about to send the Messiah, his son Jesus Christ, and to establish through the Messiah a new dispensation with the people, now the Father is sending angelic messengers to announce his intention to prepare the mind of the people to receive such a great blessing and such a great news. The angel stood on, on the right side. Let me remind you, as I told you, in the holy place, when you enter, you will find on your left side the uh, lampstand. On your right side, the table of showbread. In front of you, the altar of incense. So, the cry was standing here. So, on his right side means between the altar of incense and the table of showbread. So, the angel stood between the altar of incense and the showbread table. Uh, and behind the, the, the altar of incense, the veil, and behind the veil, the holy of the holies. And here Zechariah was alone in the presence of God. Verse 12, when Zacharias saw him, so the angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. The appearance of the angel was sudden, unexpected, therefore was fearful. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, it's obvious that God's providence has been at work in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So, without revealing his name, the angel did not tell him until this moment, I am Archangel Gabriel. So without revealing his name, the angel said to Zechariah, don't be afraid. And I want to tell you something. When the angel says, don't be afraid, there is a power with this word to cast away any fear from his heart. Maybe I said somebody, don't be afraid, but he's still scared. But when the angel said, don't be afraid, there is a power to remove any fear from the heart of this person. Then he told him, for your prayer is heard. Uh, which prayer? The prayer for offspring. That's why he told him, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. But some scholar think that uh, uh, the prayer here is not the prayer to have a son, but the prayer that Uh, the Messiah might come, the kingdom of God might appear. Uh, this uh, disconnection for 400 years may end. Uh, but actually, it's more logical to believe the prayer here is prayer for offspring, because among the Jews, this was the object of intense desire. To have children so the Messiah might come from uh, their offspring. Uh, and then he told him, your wife will bear you a son and you will name him John. John means God is gracious. God is gracious. I told you Zachariah means God remembers. Elizabeth means the oath of God. So, 
the oath of God means the promise of God to save the world. This promise was given even to Adam and Eve after the fall. The son of or the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the dragon. Then God remembers Zechariah and he is sending us John. God is gracious. So, the promise of God united by he remembered to fulfill his promise in the fullness of time. Then God showed his graciousness and his compassion on us by saving us. That's the meaning of three names. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Uh, this son would be the prophet of the highest, would go before the Lord, will prepare his ways, will give knowledge of salvation to many, and enlighten those who were in darkness and guide their feet in the way of peace. Because of all these reasons, uh, John will be a source of joy and gladness to many. Uh, and actually, later on, after the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah expressed all this in his praise, that he is the son of the prophet, uh, he is the prophet of the highest, go before the Lord, prepare his way, give knowledge of salvation to many, enlighten those who are in darkness, guide their feet in the way of peace. That's why many will rejoice at his birth. Uh, does not refer only to the time of his birth, but to subsequent rejoicing until now. We rejoice because of John the Baptist. So, John, who has all this characteristic, will be an honor to the family, to his family. Many will rejoice, and he is actually a blessing to all mankind. John the Baptist is a blessing to all of us, to all mankind. Verse 15. For he, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor a strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. All of us, we have natural ambition to be great. Some people desire to be rich. Uh, some people desire uh, honors and reputation, other uh, uh, desire, prestige and position. But here the true greatness, as we read in verse 15, to be great in the sight of the Lord. So, in the sight of God, John is the greatest among those born of women. Uh, uh, and God actually made of John a great use. He became the forerunner, prepared the way for the Messiah, and turned many souls to, to repentance, and brought many souls to God. The angel said to Zechariah, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, means he will not drink any drink that ordinarily intoxicates. Because no lover of wine or strong drink can be great in the sight of God. And also, very interesting that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Pope Shunuda used to say, this family, each member of this family was filled from the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. When St. Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And after the birth of John the Baptist, 
Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and praised God. So, beautiful family. The father, the mother, and the son. Each one is filled with the Holy Spirit. So, here the angel told Zachariah that the promised child was to be consecrated to God from his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, consecrated to God. Uh, of course, it's very, very fitting that the person who will be the forerunner of the Messiah to be consecrated from his mother's womb and filled with the Holy Spirit from the mother's womb. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Uh, by repentance, as we read actually in the Gospels, many people went out to be baptized by John, baptism of repentance. John was an instrument to turn many of the Israelites who already verbally worshipped Christ but actually denied him in error, superstition, the looseness of life, he was able to bring all these people back to the Lord their God. This actually made him a great man in the sight of God. To, as we read actually in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, they that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever and ever. So those who turn the people to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12.3 Verse 17 He will also go before him, before God, before the Messiah, in the spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here Archangel Gabriel compared John to prophet Elijah who lived in the ninth century before Christ. Uh, St. John actually was related to Prophet Elijah. Uh, he, he received actually, or he was endowed by his spirit. Like uh, Prophet Elisha was granted double of uh, uh, Elijah's spirit. So here actually John the Baptist the same. Uh, when he became an adult, John the Baptist resembled uh, Prophet Elijah in many things in his dress, in his mission, both of them were celibate. Uh, John and, and Elijah wore camel hair, cloak, and leather loin clothes. Both were sent by God to call the covenant people to repentance. Also, John stood before King Herod as Elijah stood before King Ahab. So, John preached in the same integrity, courage, zeal, and power uh, like Elijah. So, John equaled, if not exceeded, Elijah in zeal of God, in, in, in discipline, in the courage, in sustaining uh, persecution uh, and, and, and enduring suffering. And when the, when the angel said to Zechariah, to turn the heart of the father to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for God. This actually quotes from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. So these are quotes. To turn the father of, uh, heart of the father to the children so the children actually will acquire the obedient heart of the fathers to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So now, the wisdom says to, to be obedient to God. So he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. All of this to prepare uh, people ready for, for God, for the Messiah. Uh, 
the Jews actually believed and they believe until now that Elijah would visibly return to earth uh, as herald of the Messiah. Uh, because the Jews, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they are waiting for the Messiah and they believe that Elijah will come before the Messiah. We believe that Elijah will come before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 18 And Zechariah said to the angel How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Apparently there is something actually blameable in this hesitation to believe the angel promise. The testimony of an angel in a very holy place inside the holy, during the offering of incense, all these things should be enough proof and convincing to Zechariah the truth of this message. But for some reason, uh, Zechariah doubted and he won't assign. Verse 19, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, now he revealed his identity, who stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. So the words of the angel imply that he was not happy with the hesitation of Zechariah. Uh, and when Zechariah said, how shall I know this? The angel replied by saying, I am Gabriel. I am a second archangel, second among archangels. How can you doubt? And God sent me to bring you these glad tidings. You received the honor of being the first one to whom the gospel of the kingdom is preached. The, the new covenant is preached. So here Zechariah is rebuked by Archangel Gabriel because he has a question of disbelief in his response. He demanded a sign. So verse 20, But behold, you will be mute. I, that is the sign. You asked for a sign. This is the sign. You will be mute and not able to, not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So the question is answered. The demand for a sign was granted. Uh, and this sign will not be lifted until the fulfillment of the message. The demand of a sign implied lack of faith or weakness of faith. That's why the sign took a form of a discipline uh, or a judgment uh, because he did not believe what was said to him by Archangel Gabriel. Gabriel means the hero of God, the mighty one of God. And the church identifies Archangel Gabriel as one of the seven archangels. He is the announcer of good news special messenger of good news. He came to Daniel to tell him about the restoration of Jerusalem. He came to Zechariah to announce the birth of John and to declare uh, the glorious office of John the Baptist. He came to St. Mary uh, uh, to tell her about the birth of Christ. Archangel Michael, who is the first among the seven archangels, he is the warrior of God. Uh, who is like God? That's the meaning of his name. In book of Daniel, he fought with the enemies of the people of the Lord, Archangel Michael. In the letter of Jude and the book of Revelation, we see Archangel Michael also fighting against Satan and defeating uh, Satan. Uh, so Archangel Michael is the warrior 
Archangel Gabriel is the announcer of the good news. Verse 21. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. While Zechariah was alone in the holy place, the other priests had gathered on the sanctuary steps. He was supposed to join them in giving the final priestly benediction or blessing. And the congregation and other chief priests waited for him. Uh, and they have become increasingly concerned. Why? Because it happened before that some priest died in offering up the holy incense. Because of their sins, they were unqualified men and offered uh, sins inappropriately. Like in Leviticus chapter 10, in Numbers chapter 16, in Numbers chapter 40, 2 Corinthians chapter 26. All these stories about people died. So they're wondering why he, why he lingered. Something happened to him? Did he die? What happened to Zechariah? So the priest and the people standing outside were relieved when Zechariah finally appeared at the sanctuary door. He came outside the holy place. But it was then that they realized he had lost his power of speech as a result of what had happened to him in the sanctuary. As we read in verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them and they perceived he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Uh, verse 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. The days, according to the usual order of the temple, it's one week from Sabbath to Sabbath, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 5. So although Zechariah was mute, but he was still able to burn incense and to perform the other duties of his office. So he remained until his week finished. Then, uh, after his service ended, he departed to his own house. Uh, his house was generally supposed to be at Hebron. That this Hebron was the city of the priest about 20 miles away from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, verse 24. And 25, and this will be the last two verses in our Bible study tonight. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So, although Zachariah was mute, but he can write. Or he could uh, write. So he must have written his experience with the angel and shared with Elizabeth the tremendous blessing God was giving them. They will have a son. And when she was pregnant, she hid herself five months. Why? Various reasons have been suggested for this withdrawal. Maybe she was amazed at the angelic announcement. So this simply godly woman went into perfect isolation from everybody for a considerable period of time in order to have more time to meditate on the wonderful goodness of God toward her and her husband and in order to praise him for it and rejoice within. This could be one reason. Also maybe to consider how she best could do her part to train herself for this great child uh, to, in order to be the best mother to this great child. Because this child will play a very important role in the history of the people. Or maybe she kept herself hidden and avoiding seeing company that she might conceal her pregnancy for a while, lest she should expose herself to ridicule 
by speaking of it before she knew certainty that it was reality. If she told them I'll be pregnant, me people would make fun of her. She said in verse 25, Thus the Lord has dealt with me. Thus has dealt with me means in this merciful manner, in this very gracious and bountiful manner, to give me strength to conceive a son in her old age. Thus the Lord has dealt with me graciously in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. As I told you, among the Jews at that time, family uh, of children is considered a blessed family. They have favor before God. The Messiah could come from this family. But to be a barren is considered a reproach or disgrace. Uh, she said to take away my reproach. Rachel actually, he, she was barren, the mother of Joseph. And when God actually gave her Joseph, she said, God has taken away my reproach, as we read in Genesis chapter 30, verse 23. Uh, this actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Uh, because the time uh, is ended, unfortunately, I will not be able to give summary in Arabic today because we took almost one hour. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.